I myself are very encouraged to see the children publicly express their love for their dads. Joyce is my heart. Um, I think, Mark, your, your son said he, Daniel loves you because you like dinner. <laughs> i got to come over sometime and see what you guys eat for dinner. Uh, it's it very good. Well, Father's Day, you know, and uh, I'm going to start out by confessing something. And I think maybe some of the fathers, if not all the fathers, will agree and identify with my confession. And we say from the pulpit that fathers are very significant and important, and the Bible definitely teaches, teaches us that. And Father's Day cards, you know, TV shows, movies, so on and so on, go just on and on about the importance of fathers, significance of fathers in the family. But as I, I will confess that my wife tells me all the time how important I am, and my, my daughter, especially Elizabeth, recounts that to me. Uh, I feel quite often that I am not very important at home. I feel somewhat not significant, not crucial, not pivotal in my family. When I come to ministry, I feel very important, right? I feel pretty crucial because if I'm not preaching, then no one's preaching, you know. If I'm not uh, in the meetings and I'm I'm not there to give input and make decisions, if I'm not shepherding people, I feel important because people come to me and all that. But at home, for various reasons, not direct reasons, but indirect reasons, I often feel not very important. Some things that have clued me onto this is, you know, so much of my time is spent outside the home, in ministry, in providing for the family. Two-thirds of my time is devoted outside the family. So when I come home, it's kind of sometimes, I don't know what's going on. You know, it's, they're involved in things that are somewhat foreign to me and not familiar to me as well. And even when Elizabeth was about a year old and she was learning to say her first words, you know, we're competing in the home. Serene wanted to say for Elizabeth's first words to be mommy. And of course, I wanted to counter that. And we wanted to make sure that Elizabeth's first word was daddy. So every opportunity I got was telling Elizabeth, daddy, daddy, daddy. And Serene would say mommy once in a while. And of course, Elizabeth's first word was mommy, right? Like, okay, I, so, I, so I can live with that, you know. Serene spends a lot more time with Elizabeth, and uh, she's dependent on her. So, okay, I can go for a second. And so we're waiting for a second word, second word, daddy, daddy. And her second word was the Korean word for food, kogi. <laughs> okay, all right, so there's, uh, you know, the priority in our family, mommy and kogi. So I'm waiting for the third word. Okay, after kogi, it's got to be daddy. I'm telling her to say daddy. And her third word was potty, right? <laughs> close, but not, you know, close enough. And then Emma comes along, and we're waiting for her first word, and of course, it's not, it's umma, Korean word for mom. So certain are saying, yeah, it's because it's easier to say umma than, than appa or daddy. That's how I try to explain it away. But I'm fearing that our second word will be Elizabeth. <laughs> A far more difficult word than, than appa. But we'll wait and see, right? Even in the home, you know, when I'm sick, when I'm like uh, down with a flu and a cold, or I just came, I was out of town for a few days doing Joe White and Julia White's wedding, when I'm not home, our family runs, you know, more smoothly. Everything goes better. House is cleaner. Kids are cleaner, more well-behaved. Um, if Serena is sick, if my wife, I'm sure our fathers can identify, right? Moms can't get sick. But once a year, maybe, they get sick, and the house is a mess. Uh, the children, I dressed Elizabeth one day this past week, and we had a babysitter come over and said, what happened to Elizabeth? 
like, why? Why is she dressed this way? And I'm like, oh, I just put clothes together. So it, mom is sick. House falls apart. Dad is not. Dad is sick. House, house uh, runs better. You know, we, it, we might feel unimportant. We might we feel that way at times. But we know from experience, we know from Scripture that that is far from the truth. And uh, a lady named Irma Bombeck, that name might ring familiar to some of you, shares a simple truth in her book, Families, the Ties That Bind, that gave me insight into the significance and importance of fathers in the family. She says that the simple presence of the man in the home makes a world of difference. A simple presence. It makes a tremendous impact in the life of a child. She says, that's why the death of a father is hurtful. The loss of a father by divorce is utterly tragic. And she shares a beautiful story about how she found out the importance of her own dad. She writes, one morning my father didn't get up and go to work. He went to the hospital and died the next day. I hadn't thought about him much before. He was just someone who left and came home, seemed glad to see us at night. He opened a jar of pickles when no one else could. He was the only one in the house who wasn't afraid to go into the basement by himself. He cut himself shaving, but no one kissed it or got excited about it. It was understood that when it rained, he was the one who got the car and brought it around to the door. When anyone was sick, he went and got the prescription filled. He took a lot of pictures, but he was never in them. Whenever I played house, the mother had a lot to do. I never knew what to do with the daddy doll. So I had him say, I'm going off to work now, (laughs) and threw him under the bed. The funeral was in our living room, and a lot of people came and brought all kinds of good food and cakes. We never had so much company before. I went to my room. I felt under the bed for the daddy doll. When I found him, I dusted him off and put him on my bed. He never did anything. But I didn't know his leaving would hurt so much. Wow, such insight into the father's role. He never did much around the house. Mom did a lot, but he did very little. And yet his absence hurts so much because a father and a family, his presence is irreplaceable. He is significant and he is important in the life of the family. The Bible declares that again and again. The key role that fathers play in the family, that he is the head of the household, the head of the wife. He is the pastor, as our elder Bob shared. It begins and ends with him. But sadly, as elder Bob said as well, fathers are largely absent in the home today. Most fathers are absent out, out in the world, busy at work busy playing sports. The fathers at our home are passive. They're lazy. They're spiritually invisible. This is arguably, I contend, the, the single greatest sin committed by men in the church. 
The single greatest sin committed by men in the church is not adultery, it's not lying, it's not stealing, it's not lack of ministry, it's not lack of evangelism or prayer. I believe the single greatest sin that's committed by men in the church is their passivity at home. They have relinquished, they have largely relinquished their God-given role. They have refused to lead at home, refused to be an example. And the soul of our families and churches are in crisis because men have largely abandoned their God-given role as fathers, as husbands, and simply as men. People say that on average, American fathers give each of their children a mere three minutes of undivided attention per day. Three minutes of undivided attention per day, per child. Edwin Cole rightly labels the absence and the passivity of the father as the curse of our day. And so children are rotting because of the absence of godly male role models. What is the result? What happens when fathers are passive and fathers are not godly, are not pursuing the Lord and they're not um, involved in spiritually shepherding, leading as wife and children? What is the result? My answer might surprise you. You might initially disagree. Hopefully by the end you'll agree. I believe the result is angry children. Angry kids. You know, when I was single, I never saw angry kids. I always saw happy kids. But as I mature in the faith, as I've gotten married, and as a father, I see angry kids everywhere. They have a wounded spirit. They have a discouraged heart. They have a chip on their shoulders. I see them in the happiest place on earth, in Disneyland. You know, whenever I visit Toys R Us, I see angry kids. Right? When I see neighbor kids, even in our own home. Elizabeth and Emma, sometimes I could see, I don't know about Emma, but Elizabeth, I could see angry streak in them and her. Let me give you some marks of angry children. Um, hypersensitivity. Their temperament is brittle, fragile. They easily, and almost anything can trigger them to lose their temper. They throw tantrums at any slight offense to them. If they don't get their way, they resort to anger. Therefore, you have to placate them, cater to them, and live to please them. You have to walk on eggshells around them. They become and they grow up to be giant little monsters because of their temper. They are utterly selfish. They have no compassion, empathy for others. They're not considerate of others because... Their foremost mindset is themselves. They are violent. They are prone to hitting. Even parents. The Bible and the Old Testament. Anyone who strikes a parent will be stoned to death. Repeated throughout the Torah, the first five books. But yet, because fathers aren't leading, the parents are violent, uh, children are violent, hitting, spitting, and even biting parents, siblings, grandparents, neighborhood kids. They're respected disrespectful towards parents, disrespectful towards authority figures, school teachers, the teachers that are here, I know vacation's coming, or it's here, or coming soon, you guys are all happy. And what makes your job so difficult? Because you have children who don't respect authority. And where does that start? At home. They don't respect their own parents. They don't respect their dad. Therefore, 
They have no respect for any authority in the world. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, not embitter your children. Why? Because they might get discouraged. They're so provoked to anger that they've given up. They're apathetic. They've lost heart. They don't care anymore. They don't care about themselves, about family, about their friends. They're utterly discouraged. And they walk around wallowing with heads held low. What happens to angry kids? What happens to these angry children? They become angry adults. If they are left unchecked, untaught, untrained, unshepherded, they grow up to be angry adults. And we see them all around us in the world. They rebel against parents, teachers, and all authorities. They see a law and they want to violate that law. They want to push the envelope. Right? They don't want to submit to governing authorities. They want to question authority. They want to fight against authority. They have a chip on their shoulders. And they want, they're look, out there looking for a fight. They are stubborn. They're obstinate adults, insensitive to others. They lack conscientiousness, sympathy and compassion to others. They're full of resentment, lacking attitude. And ultimately, they grieve their parents. Proverbs 17.25 a foolish son is a grief to his father, a bitterness to those to her who bore him. They grieve their parents, and ultimately, the worst of all, they deny Christ. Because they're so, they feel so wounded, they become stubborn. Stubbornness leads to pride, and pride leads to rebellion. And because their core constitution is rebellion, they rebel against Christ, rebel against God, and against His law. And so they deny fall away, stray away from our God. It is all caused because of angry kids left unchecked. Now, we know the ultimate cause of anger in children. It is, uh, it is sin. They're born in sin. Right? It's, not, it's not the family's fault in a sense. Ultimately, essentially, it's not society. It's not culture. It's, it's by birth. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world, and we're all born with sin. We're born dead in trespass. We know that the ultimate cause is sin, but the circumstantial cause, the practical, functional cause, the triggering cause of anger in a child's heart has to be laid upon the parents, and within the parents has to be laid squarely upon the shoulder of the father. God specifically lays the culpability of children to the Father. To the Father. So, children are a direct reflection of a father's maturity, godliness, faith, or lack thereof in the home. Real keen spiritual insight here. You know, like single people, it's hard to figure out how they're really doing in the Lord. How mature they are, how immature they are. It's hard to figure out, single people, like, uh, what's going on in their hearts. You know, you just have to believe what they write in their Zenga sites, right? You just go by that, right? What they, what they profess and confess, what else can you do? Married couples, it's a little easier to kind of discern how they're doing because you have a meal with them and you see how they relate to one another. You see how the tone of the voice, how the husband speaks to his wife, how she, he treats her, how he leads her. And you can see how the wife responds to his leadership. 
Right? Their relationship is an indication of what's really going in the husband's heart behind closed doors. But for those who are married with children, it is so clear. It is too easy. Because their children are like pop-up ads. Right? They just pop up everywhere. Right? <laughs> public, semi-public, private. They come up and they show their real self. They act upon their impulses. And it reveals the maturity, godliness, faithfulness of the Father, or the opposite, the immaturity, the ungodliness, the sinfulness, the passivity of the Father. So that firsthand this past week, spent the day with the Smiths, and we don't want to you know, pump up any man, but man, he's a good dad. He really is. It's a joy to be around him. You see kids at Disneyland, and they're from Czech Republic. They get to come to Disneyland once every few years, and the kids never complained. Four of them. And they were like, oh, we don't need to ride this ride. It's okay, we'll spend time with you. Right? What does Elizabeth want to ride? You know, let's, it's okay, let's ride. And uh, Catherine was riding Dumbo ride. You know, he just want to ride the Dumbo, bit, Dumbo ride. But they were being servants. The whole day they showed a servant attitude, gentleness, compassion, graciousness. That was all a reflection of Peter, Pastor Peter's heart at home. Right? Children are a direct reflection of the father's heart, his life at home. That is why when a church considers who are the godly men of the church, who are the ones who exhibit true godliness and maturity, Apostle Paul does not say, see if he can teach, see what degrees he has. You know, look at how successful he is in the business world. Apostle Paul doesn't say that. How charismatic is he in a personality sense? How dynamic is he as a man? Paul doesn't say any of those things. Apostle Paul says, look at his children. See how his children interact and relate with him. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, he must manage his own household well with all dignity. He's not threatening them. He's not chasing them around. He's not manipulating them, coercing them to obey Him. No, He remains dignified. He remains respectful. Maintaining His dignity, His children are submissive. They're respectful. They're loyal. And Paul says, if someone cannot manage his own household with dignity, how will he care for God's church? Titus 1.6 says also, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are faithful, are loyal. They are not open to the charge of debauchery. They are not wild. They are not disobedient. Then this man is a mature believer. This man is qualified to lead and serve the church. But if his children are disrespectful, rebellious, out of control, disobedient. No matter how long he has been a believer, no matter how well he knows the Bible, no matter how well he teaches or is successful in the world, he is not, in God's sight, a mature man. He is not a godly man. He is not fit to lead the church. We see the Apostle Paul give fathers clear instructions from Ephesians 6.4. And as a fellow father, I'm preaching to myself. And I preach to all the dads in our church. And in a way, these principles are applicable to every single one here. So I am preaching to all of you. In Ephesians 6.4, Paul gives a 
direct command. It's in the second person plural, imperative. It's a command. And he commands fathers. He, he pleads with us. Fathers addresses pateris. It can refer to both fathers and mothers, but it is pateris. He's addressing the men, and he says, fathers commanding us, do not provoke your children to anger, para or gale, alongside orge, anger, wrath, being enraged, do not provoke ongoing, repeated pattern of treatment where it provokes our children to anger. He commands us. It applies to all of us, but I think it applies especially to those who are in a position of authority because those who are in authority have this power and we can use it to build up and nourish people under us or we can misuse our authority and cause those who are under our authority to be, be provoked, to be embittered, to resentment and anger. So pastors here, right? I can, lead, I can provoke you guys to anger. I can. By my, how I do ministry, how I conduct myself, by the things that I say. All the moms here, you can provoke your children right, by sinful behavior, sinful attitudes and decisions. Flock shepherds, small group leaders, grandparents, employers, managers, older brothers, older sisters, so on down the line. This command applies to us. Well, the question is then, how do fathers provoke a child to anger? How does this happen? What are some ways, practically, that fathers do this? Lou Priolo's book, Heart of Anger, is a very, uh, I encourage you, if you're, you're, and I encourage all of you to read it. I I read that when we didn't have children. It was very helpful for me, even in shepherding my own heart. And he lists 25 ways fathers provoke a child to anger. I reduced that down to top ten, right? We had a drummer here, I have a drum roll. Top ten ways fathers provoke their children to anger. So it's not like David Letterman, ten through one. It's one through ten. So number one, right? It's like uh, lack of marital harmony. Lack of marital harmony. Perhaps the greatest provocation of anger in children is parents who do not live with each other in harmony that the scriptures prescribe. Genesis 2.24, God said, Therefore a man shall leave his family and become united with his wife. They shall become one flesh. That term, one flesh, appears a total of five times in the Bible. But when a husband does not develop the one flesh intimacy intended by God, then that directly impacts children. You cannot separate your relationship with your spouse and your relationship with your children. When a child looks up and sees mom and dad love one another, they're intimate, they're united, they're one heart, one soul, one mind, it builds them up in the faith. It builds their character. It builds their confidence. But if they see their parents divided, arguing, not pursuing one another, then it causes them, provokes in them anger, rebellion, and stubbornness. Right? If the father has stopped loving and pursuing mom, direct impact on the child. Second way fathers impact, um, provoke children by promoting and, and consistently nurturing a child-centered home. 
by, by raising up a child-centered home as opposed to a God-centered, Christ-centered home. When a father gives over the authority of the family to the child, and therefore the child sets the schedule of the family, the family revolves around the child's needs, right? child's happiness. Their, their ultimate priority is to please the child, to make the child happy rather than Christ. Then it provokes the child to anger. So much so that even ministry is dictated by the child. His schedule, his needs, his wants. You will earn contempt any time you do too much for a person, and that includes a child. If you do too much for your child, and you center your family around the child, ultimately, eventually, the family will earn the child's contempt. Third way is by the father losing his temper, by becoming angry, by perhaps habitually disciplining your child, while, while you are angry, right? if the parents are given to anger, they lash out with emotion, and they name-calling, they give, they, do, they give threats, and they are harsh and overbearing, and they're scolding, and the children will view that as personal attacks, rather than carrying out God-ordained instructions. Discipline becomes vindictive instead of corrective. Such anger is not of the Lord. James 1.19-20 says that, that, that a man's anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Anger that parents display when they are offended, when they are embarrassed, is not righteous anger. That is sinful anger. Righteous anger is when God is offended. When God's name is Lord, when God's word is transgressed. But even with that, we discipline and we instruct our children knowing that we're equally guilty of offending God, of violating His commands. We're to discipline humbly, meekly, knowing that we are sinners as well. But if, in, if we in anger and a judgmental attitude, with that heart, we discipline our children, we lose our temper, then we will in time provoke them to anger as well. Fourth way is parents being inconsistent in discipline and training. Being inconsistent in discipline and training. And this happens in two ways. One way is bad cop, good cop. Uh, Where the mom is the bad cop and dad is the good cop. Mom's the enforcer trying to enforce the rules of the house. And Father, because he loves himself, he gives the kid candy, gives the kid hugs, and says, oh yeah, mom's so harsh. Man, she's so tough. Daddy loves you. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. I'll pretend I'm disciplining you and I'll be hitting the wall. Just scream, okay? That kind of inconsistency and division will cause a child to rebel. Inconsistency, in a sense, second way is by vacillating from day to day on what is and what is not worthy of discipline. Where the rules of the house change depending on the mood of the parents, mood of the father, time of day, or other circumstances, inconsistencies. Or how about um, 
Hypocrisy, number five. Hypocrisy. Children have an intrinsic sense of justice. So when a father uses the Bible to teach, reprove, correct, and instruct his child in righteousness, but is not willing to practice the same biblical righteousness in his own life, he is not only a hypocrite, but by his hypocrisy, he will affect his child. It is a serious sin that will surely set a child on a road of anger and rebellion. And we say one thing and do another. And we say, well, it's because we're parents. Because I'm the dad. We are sitting before God. And it will affect our children. Number six, um, being legalistic. Being libertine, opposite extremes are both grave and serious errors. Being legalistic will provoke a child to anger. When we elevate man-made rules to the same level as the commands of God given in the Scriptures, legalism is suffocating. It produces rebellion because children realize that this is not God's authority, this is man-made authority. Provokes believers and children to sin and anger. We need to clearly discern and divide what is biblical commands and personal instructions and not bind our child's conscience to our personal preferences. But when we cross that line and make ex-cathedra statements, authoritative statements, and bind our children's consciences to our preferences and whims, it will do much harm in their hearts. At the same time, the opposite is equally uh, hurtful. Giving too much freedom to a child provokes a child to anger because they can't handle such freedom. Where you allow a child to live in a mess, wake up whenever they want, sleep whenever they want, eat whenever they want, how much they want, how little they want. They get to dictate even their personal hygiene, no rules, because in the name of freedom, in the name of tolerance and love, you allow them to run rampant because they can't handle such freedom, handle living without, such, without guidelines and rules. Cause them much harm as well. Number seven, parents reversing God-given roles. Parents reversing God-given roles. When God's order and design for the family is violated, there are various and compounding consequences. When the wife and mom starts leading the home, she disrespects her husband, refuses to submit, and she begins to lead the family slowly but surely. The family structure will erode and fade away. Husband who who refuses to lead who refuses to teach and live by the Word of God, shepherding his family, will become more and more lazy and passive and become marginalized in the home. And these things have direct effect upon the child. Number eight. I think number eight is uh, identifiable for most of us here. We live, we grew up, especially if you're Asian. Asians are a shame culture, bragging culture. Comparing them to others provokes a child to anger. If we were to compare our child 
to our cousins, sisters, neighbors, second child who got perfect on the SAT. And we never let them forget that. Who was that again? Our cousins, sisters, neighbors, second child. Right? <laughs> That'll cause them to rebel. Or you compare them to siblings. You know, your sister's not like you. Oh, your brother's so much better. Why can't you be more like her? Why can't you be more like him? Number nine, not encouraging your child, just criticizing, having a critical spirit, always condemning, always rebuking, always scolding without encouragement, consistently and constantly finding fault, whereupon a child can't please his or her parent, no matter what they do. That's why Colossians 3.21 is a parallel verse to Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children in this way because they might become discouraged. They might give up. They might lose heart. And a child's heart is fragile. If they lose heart, how will they find it again? How will they gain it again? We see that in Revelation 2 and 3 when our Lord addresses the seven churches. Each time, He has three commendations. He makes three statements of praise to each church. Good job, good job, good job. And then He rebukes them. And then He corrects them. And then He condemns. Because He understands, as our Lord, that we are weak, we are fragile. That He needs to tenderly care for us. Balancing condemnation with encouragement. Number ten, final one. Not admitting that you've been wrong when you are when you have been wrong, and not asking for forgiveness. Right. That is key. We had a member join our church years ago. That was one of the questions he has asked me. James, have you ever confessed uh, uh, that you've done wrong in the church? For that brother, that was important because that was a sign that the man was under the authority of Scripture, and that he was a humble man. Right? And it's important for parents to do that. Important for fathers to do that. That when we pray together with our children and our families, we're not just praying for our wives. Oh God, help my wife. You know, Help our mom. Help her to obey and follow you. Oh, help the children to obey God. In Jesus' name, Amen. No, that we're praying and we pray for ourselves. God, I sinned against you. Help me. Forgive me. I need to grow. And that if ever and when we sin against our wives, when we sin against our children, that we admit we have sinned, that we've wronged them, and we ask for their forgiveness, that reveals to our children our humility and also that we are under the authority of Christ. That the ultimate authority of the family is not the Father, but it's the Father in heaven. In heaven, it is so important that we avoid these ten things. Right? Because if we continue to provo- provoke our children to anger, and if that anger in our child is prolonged, Satan, our enemy, will exploit the family discord and will lead your child and my child away and divide this family or you might say, hey, Pastor James, you know, it's okay. I'm, about, I'm, I'm batting for about 50% or 500. 
You know, if I'm 50%, I'm, I'm, but I'm still doing alright. My kids still love me. They're doing well. You know, you might, we might be able to get away with things like this when, the ch- when children are young, but wait till they're teenagers. You guys remember? Some of you guys are teenagers, but you guys remember when you're teenagers? Right? You know, they'll see right through you. They'll mature. And they'll learn, they'll start thinking for themselves. And they'll see right through your hypocrisy, my hypocrisy. They'll see right through my laziness, my emotional immaturity, my selfishness, my self-centeredness. They'll see right through my and your foolish decisions. And they'll see clearly our priorities in life. And if we're not following through Ephesians 6.4, it'll... The anger will have set in and they'll begin to rebel. Paul says, no, fathers, he commands us, do not provoke your child to anger. And then he gives us two positive instructions. And negatively seen, I might have, maybe I might have done a 12, you know, put 12 on the list. These might be the top two ways a father can provoke his child to anger. A father by refusing to train his child in the Lord, and by refusing to admonish, to teach a child in the Lord. Paul says, do not provoke. Instead, do these two things. Because if you don't do these two things, you'll provoke them to anger. First of all, Paul commands, his first command is, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. The word is paideia comes from the word pice, which is child, and refers to the systematic training of children. It is a comprehensive word. The word used here is training of a child. There's a positive sense and a negative sense. Training and discipline. Training and discipline. First, let's look at the training part. Paul's meaning here is expressed in the proverb, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Nourish them, bring them up, ingrain in them how they should live. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. From birth, we should be inculcating to them habits of godliness, investing in them, coaching them. Right? Having them do godly things again and again so that when they're old, they will continue to walk in godliness. Some say, hey, Pastor James, you shouldn't ingrain religion into children. You shouldn't indoctrinate faith into children. You should give them freedom. You should let them choose. That makes no sense. That is absurd. We don't do that with our children with personal hygiene. Right? We don't do that with our children about manners and etiquette and the issues of ethics and morality. We don't let them choose. Yeah, you can respect parents or not. You can you know, work hard or not. You can be considerate of others or not. No. From when they're young, we train them in all these things. And more important than all these things, even personal hygiene is our faith in Christ. So the last thing we should leave up to them is Christ, we are to train them in Christ. It means that they are to train up their children in such a manner as the Lord approves. They are to be ingrained, coached, educated, 
for virtue and religion. That's the positive side. It's a comprehensive word. It means training, but it also means discipline. Also means correction. There is, I mean, when you coach an athlete, train an athlete, there is positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Likewise with children. We train them up, and yet when they stray, we are to correct them. When they violate God's command, we are to discipline them. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. He who loves him is diligent to discipline him. If you're not disciplining your child, you're not, you're loving yourself. You're not loving your child. If you spare the rod, you're hating your child. But if you love him, you will be diligent to discipline. Discipline and correction are essential. They are restorative. They are designed to restore, rescue from danger, return to the circle of God's blessing. The Bible is not unclear about spanking children. I know it is not popular in our culture, but it is explicit in the scriptures. And it, not only that, it works. It causes reconciliation. It causes harmony. It produces a warm and loving home. The, the, the joyous times we've had in our family, times of intimacy between Elizabeth and I is when she has sinned against God by disobeying me or her mom, disrespecting mom, and I discipline her, and then we pray together, and then I say, uh, we pray and ask God for forgiveness, and I reaffirm my love for her, I love you Elizabeth, she says, I love you daddy, and if she has sinned against mom, they go, go run to her, and she runs to mom and says, mom forgive me, and Surin says yes, and they hug and embrace, and they pray together, it's been times of joy, where we deal with sin in our family. We don't let it linger. We don't brush it under the rug. We don't let it cement in our household and become part of our culture where we sin openly, blatantly, and we don't confront it. Or over time, we become a sinful family. No, we deal with it biblically. And under Calvary of Christ, we receive forgiveness from Christ and from forgiveness from one another. Proverbs 19, 18 Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Proverbs 22.15 Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. There is foolishness in the heart of a child. The child is born in sin. There is a rebellious streak, a selfishness, a sinfulness that they are born with. We didn't give it to them. They didn't learn it from television. They didn't get it from the world. It came from their heart. And the Bible promises the rod of correction will drive this foolishness away. Proverbs 23, 13-14 I love this. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Right, what a promise verse. Right? Don't act like they're dying. Right? They'll act like they're, you know, on the last breath. Elizabeth, whenever she, you know, you know Elizabeth, when she, she sins, she starts coughing, acting like she's sick. Right? First 20 times I believed her. She's okay, she's sick. Now I know better. And the Bible promises that she will not die. Right? Verse 14, if you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. 
Proverbs 29.15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. We see that in the Old Testament with David's fourth son, Adonijah. He never corrected him, he says, in 1 Kings 1.6. Samuel never confronted him and corrected him. And Adonijah rebelled against his father and tried to steal his kingdom away. Remember, Eli's two sons, they were rebellious. They were living in sin, committing adultery. Why? Because Eli, Eli priest Eli, was not faithful to confront and correct his own sons. And they brought grief to, his, to their father and to his name in the nation of Israel. It is ultimately the father's responsibility to train and to discipline. The final verses that I'll refer to is Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. It says, Do not regard lightly the discipline. King James says, The chastening of the Lord why? Because He is treating you as a son. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And I think all of us to a degree can understand that experientially. That as a young child, if our parents were angry with us, disciplined us, in a weird way, we sense their love for us, their care for our souls. Right. Um, my wife and I were endeavoring to uh, you know, serve the world. We want to be a light in our community and, and care for, for children. We wanted to do international adoption, but it was cost prohibitive. So we're in the process of um, being foster parents and to adopt a foster child. You know, the Bible says... God is a God, a father to the fatherless. Right? Religion that our God finds faultless is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. You know, in Orange County, California, how, what can we do to care for our people? Right? Care for the uh, difficult, you know, people who are uh, suffering or financially difficult in Orange County, California. We can do so. We, we can't do much here because it's an affluent community, society. So we want to help children. So we want to adopt. And we're about halfway through, and we met with our caseworker, and they, they told us. We know you're Christians, but because they're under the guardianship and the authority of the state, you cannot span, you cannot discipline the child long as when the child is under the a foster care system. Once we adopt a child, we can discipline all we want, but until that time, we can't discipline. What is your response? And we responded, the Bible tells us clearly, we are to submit to our governing authorities. So we will abide by the rules of the state. And the foster child, we will not discipline at all. We will use different measures, like, you know, timeouts. I don't know, shame corner. I don't know what they do, right? <laughs> no, no cookies for you. I don't know, do all of that stuff. We'll only discipline our children. Our initial fear was, wow, would Elizabeth and Emma feel unloved because they're getting disciplined and the foster child is not. But we predict, and we think this will come true, the opposite will be the case, that Elizabeth and Emma will feel loved by us. They'll feel that we're their parents. And we fear for the foster child because we cannot and will not discipline. So he or she will feel like an outsider. I'm not part of this family. You don't really care for my soul. I'm not really your child. Right? And I suspect if we do adopt a child, he or she will look forward to that first discipline and will sense the love of 
his or her parents. This is what Doug Wilson said. Listen to this. A refusal to discipline amounts to, hate, amounts to hatred and is simply a slow, cruel way for a man to disown his child, clearly marking him out as illegitimate. Oh, that's powerful. A refusal to discipline is a slow, cruel way of disowning your child. You're marking him out as an illegitimate child. That's what Doug Wilson, that's what the Bible tells us. Right? That we are to train them positive reinforcement. But when they sin, we need to show our love for their souls and obedience to God's command. My discipline. That is not the complete picture. He says, raise them up in the idea of the Lord. And then he continues, in the instruction of the Lord. Raise them up in the instruction of the Lord. The Greek word is nutheo. It's the idea of admonition. The word literally means of putting into their minds. The sense here is that the Father is to put the mind of the Lord in their minds. We are to carefully place God's truth in their tiny minds, in their tiny hearts, so they understand God's will. It, 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 it's a comprehensive idea of instruction, of teaching little ones. It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses says to the Israelites, This is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Why? That you may fear the Lord your God. And then he says, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, you will live all the days of your life and your days may be long. God's heart is three generations long. There's a three generation vision in this passage, a long term vision. And that must be the father's heart. We're not just concerned about our children, but God's heart is, we should be concerned about their children as well. That's why we must be careful to teach them who God is and what He has done. The Bible says here, Therefore, Israel, be careful to do with them, that it may go well with you. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And Moses continues, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and your gates. This, this big picture of where the Father is always talking and teaching His children about the Word of God. Always teach them about God. At home, outside the home. Formal time, informal time. When you're lying down, sitting up, morning till night. It's the Father's privilege, authority, and stewardship, responsibility to pass on the greatness of God to the next generation. Even while walking along the road, even when we're when our car is driving down the road, we have to teach our children about God. Right? 
we are to surround our homes with Bible verses and use every opportunity to teach their little hearts the greatness, the majesty, glory, the love of our Lord. And if you do this, God promises that blessings and His favor are sure to follow. Well, I have some applications for everyone, including myself. First set of applications is for the fathers. Second set is for everyone else as they relate to their fathers. First application, we must commit to understand and embrace that we are important, that we are irreplaceable. (laughs) Irresistible. Maybe some fathers as well, you know. Uh, We are irreplaceable at home. No one can replace. There's no substitute for fathers at home. I know practically we might not sense that, feel that. We might feel like I'm, I'm home and, you know, my, my role is so limited. When I go to work, James, man, people line up. They ask for orders, right? When I come in a room, they all stand up. When I come home, I know, barely anybody greets me, right? When I'm in ministry, I feel powerful. When I'm doing work, I feel strong at home. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel that important significance, Believe that you are important. Believe that you are significant because the Bible tells you. Scriptures declare it. Secondly, in what ways are you provoking your children, your child, children to anger? Go through the ten. Are you pursuing your wife? Are you loving your wife? Are you showing intimacy, care, and concern for her? Are you... are you, are you promoting a child-centered home or a christ god center home? How's your temper? Are you losing your temper? Do you easily get angry? Right. Do you speak to your child with anger? Are you inconsistent in discipline? Are you a hypocrite? Is there a double standard? One for the children and one for you? One for your wife, one for you? Are you legalistic or are you a libertine? Have you reversed God-given roles in the home where you kind of given your wife all the responsibilities of leadership and you just are passive at home, your job is just to, to be the breadwinner? Right? Are, do you compare your child to others? Are you just criticizing, fault-finding a child because you're so discontent, because you're unsatisfied, because you're living in sin and you take it out on your child? When's the last time you confessed your sin to your wife? When's the last time you've Gone to your child. If you have sin, when you have sin, confess your wrong, your sin to your child. The buck stops with you. The buck stops with me. Right? Begins and ends with us. Maybe deal with these issues swiftly and quickly. And finally, how are you doing as a spiritual leader of the home? Are you actively engaged in spiritual warfare of training your child, of disciplining your child, and teaching your child. Fathers, it's up to you. Don't right, outsource that responsibility to your, to your wives. Don't outsource it to Christian private schools or to your uh, Sunday schools in the church or, your, or people in the church. No, that's your responsibility. May we be faithful to obey this single verse in Ephesians 6.4. Well, those are three applications for fathers. I have... Seven applications for everyone else. Number one, pray for your dad. I mean, really pray for him. I mean, really get on your knees. 
and urgently, passionately, earnestly petition on behalf of your dad that he might grow in the Lord, he might glorify Christ, he might know Scripture, he might be a man of God. Our foremost prayer. Knowing the importance, the irreplaceable role that our fathers have, knowing his authority, God-given authority, our first prayer should be for our dads. Pray for your dad. Secondly, resolve to be a wise son, to be a wise daughter, so that you will not bring grief to your parents. Proverbs 10.1 A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 17.21 17.25 23.24 Father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad at him. Go ask your dad, Dad, do I make you happy? Or do I burden you? Do I cause you grief and sorrow? Mom, are you happy because of me? Do you gain joy by seeing my life? Or are you saddened? I resolve to be a wise son and daughter so that you might bring joy to your parents. Third, respect your father. Respect your dad when he walks in your house, when he comes to visit, stand up and honor him. Leviticus 19.3 Every one of you shall revere his mother and father I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 5.16 Honor your father and mother. Deuteronomy 27.16 Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. Respect him. And if I may be so bold, even if he doesn't deserve it, respect him. Years ago we had a president of this country who was not respectable. He was not. He did not conduct himself in a manner worthy of that position of authority. He was not respectable. But I respected him. We all respected him. Why? Because the Bible calls us to, because of his role, because of his position. It is undeserved, yes, but we respect him. Likewise with our fathers. Never ever speak in public negatively of him to others. Respect him privately, respect him publicly. Number four, listen to him. Listen to him. Our dads, you know. Yeah, our dads, just wanna, they want to just talk to us. They want to share their wisdom. They want to be involved in our lives. They speak. And our role as sons and daughters is to listen. It's not to talk back. It's not to give advice. It's not to give insight. Is to listen. Proverbs twenty three twenty two. Listen to your father who gave you life. Do not despise your mother when she is old. Right? Listen to them. Seek their counsel. Right? Ask them questions. Number five. Honor him by appreciating him. Appreciating his work, his leadership and sacrifice, adopt a regular habit of encouraging him in his role as, or, as your dad, verbally expressing your respect from him, respect for him. Do this in front of your, your spouse, in front of your children, grandchildren, publicly express your admiration and appreciation. Fathers need to be needed. They need to be needed to show them respect. Number six. How about this one? Have good friends. Look at your friends. 
If you have poor friends, it brings grief to your father. If you have good friends, it brings him joy. Proverbs 28. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. You know how you bring shame upon your dad? It's if you're friends. You hang out with sinners, gluttons. Right? You hang out with godly, wise men and women. You bring them honor. Number seven, encourage him to glorify God. Encourage him. Right? Care for his soul. Care for his spiritual walk. Encourage him to glorify our Lord. One Christian father confessed, quote, My family is all grown. Kids are all gone. But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things, like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use it to direct them to God. Let's pray. Oh God, each one of us here today, our hearts are moved by the truth of Scripture. And therefore, we're so thankful to you, our God in heaven, for our fathers on earth. We thank you, God, for giving us dads who loved us, cared for us, taught us, disciplined us, and raised us to be men and women who we are today. Oh Lord, may we now turn and look at the next generation of, of, of people to come. And may we be found faithful to care and love and raise them up in the discipline, training, instruction of the Lord. Oh God, we see firsthand how you've cared for us. You've been so faithful to love us and, and, and shepherd us. Oh God, may we respond first and foremost by directing our hearts towards our families and loving our wives, loving our children onto you. Lord, may this day uh, be celebrated uh, not in a secular way, but as believers, as Christians. May this day be spent praying with our families, praying for our dads, rejoicing in the Word of God, Word of God and praising and worshiping you together with our families so that the Father, our Father in Heaven, our, that you will receive all glory for every good thing in our lives. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.